welcome to the Madden America podcast, your source for science, psychiatry and social justice. Hello, this is James and welcome to the podcast. And this week, I'm really pleased to be joined by drug safety advocate David Carmichael. David has personal experience of the effects of psychiatric drugs, having experienced a family tragedy in 2004, which he will discuss with us in this interview. David now uses his knowledge and experience to help people make informed choices about prescription drug use. In November 2023, he will embark on a tour of 15 US cities aiming to educate and inform about the possible risks of antidepressant treatment. In this interview, we got time to talk about David's experiences, his upcoming antidepressant safety tour, and the importance of fully informed consent at the time of prescribing. David, welcome. Um, thank you so much for joining me today for the Madden America podcast. I'm really grateful that you can uh, f- find the time to come and share your experiences with us. Well, I really appreciate the opportunity, James. Thank you. So um, to get us underway, you're um, a drug safety advocate, and you became one because of a, a tragedy that befell your family in 2004. So I wondered if you could share a little bit about your experiences. Well, in 2003, I was dealing with cash flow issues like so many people are today because of the fallout from the COVID pandemic. And I wasn't sure exactly what to do. And uh, I was very quickly prescribed the SSRI Paxil, um, Siroxan in the UK, you know, because I was told I had this chemical imbalance in my brain. So I was on it for eight months and I was able to pick up contract work and Things were getting a little bit more stable, but I had a couple of side effects that I really didn't like. Sexual dysfunction was one of them, and then I was sweating at night. So I tried to find out what I could about how do you get off of these drugs, and there's really nothing out there. I was told by my dog, slow taper. So I, I tapered off over several weeks, and I actually was doing pretty well. But I still had a lot of contract work, and... Packs for the first time made me, I think, a little bit manic. I had a lot of energy. I didn't have to sleep much. So I became sleep deprived. And after four months being off the drug, um, I, again, went through a bit of it. And I call it more of a nervous breakdown. You know, from years ago, that's what they might have called it. But I just wasn't sleeping at night. I was feeling anxious. I was shaking just a little bit. So I had a full prescription previously. So I put myself back on the drug. And I told my doctor but I knew he wasn't going to prescribe it again. So I just put myself back on 40 milligrams. And as soon as I did, I started to have suicidal thoughts. And when I had these thoughts, I said, oh my goodness, I'm glad I got myself back on Paxil just in time. And none of the warnings were out back in 2004. I mean, they had come out, but just a couple months earlier to healthcare professionals, but not to the public. So I was having suicidal thoughts and then with the suicidal planning. So I actually increased my own dosage. I knew that 60 milligrams was the maximum level that you could take. My doctor had told me it was all right. And I became increasingly psychotic with delusions, thinking my son, who had mild epilepsy, had permanent brain damage. Uh, you know, he, I thought he was going to kill my daughter. My wife was going to have a breakdown. And these delusions over two weeks started to increase in strength, but they were really fixed false beliefs. My, my wife thought I was getting better. I was become calmer. And I planned first a murder-suicide at our family cottage. I was going to drown both Ian and I because I was also still suicidal. And I really thought I was protecting Ian from a living hell. So I thought that was the best thing for both of us. 
And we had a boat and we had an anchor on it. I was going to tie the anchor to us and drown us both. But I forgot my bathing suit. And that was a sign from God. And, and I don't, I'm not a churchgoer, okay? but I became quite spiritual at this point that I wasn't supposed to die. So over the course of a week, I planned a father-son outing to a BMX park just outside of Toronto, Canada. And I went and, and I figured out what would be the best way to take in his life. So on the Tuesday before the weekend, I went to Shoppers Drug Mart. I bought sleeping medication. I poured it all into a vial and I took that with me. So we planned this trip. We went away. He was excited. We had a, a wonderful suite in a hotel. And to me, we it was supposed to be just almost a celebration of his death, you know, in my bizarre state. And, you know, in my case, and a forensic psychiatrist has told me, you know, a delusion is a fixed false belief. You take an issue and you blow it in proportion 30 times and then and you act on it, which is what I was doing. So we had his favorite food for dinner. We watched his favorite movie and, you know, around eight o'clock, I poured some Sleeping all the all the sleeping medication, the violin to a glass of orange juice, and he drank it. And it didn't put him to sleep; it made him hallucinate. So we were bouncing around the room until around three o'clock in the morning. When I said, "You know, I, I I've got to take his life," so I strangled him. And then I sat for six hours with his body on the bed. I put his hands across his chest, kissed him on the lips, told him, "I love you. I'm really going to miss you, but you're in a better place now." And I waited until 9 o'clock in the morning to call 911 because they didn't want to disturb the other guests in the hotel. And then I was arrested and charged with first-degree murder. David, thank you for sharing that. I, I, I just I can't imagine what it's like for a person who's been a loving parent to suddenly become under the sway of a drug-induced psychosis and to kill their child and then have to come to terms with what happened. So you were found not criminally responsible for Ian's death in 2005, and, and then you were treated in a Canadian mental health facility. Is that right? Yes, I was found not criminally responsible, and it was a joint resolution you know, between what we call in Canada the Crown Attorney, uh, which is the prosecutor, and my criminal defense lawyer. There was no question I was psychotic. Both of the experts, forensic psychiatrists, agreed I was psychotic. And they diagnosed a major depression with psychotic episodes. What wasn't brought in to the case was the fact that I was on Paxil at the time. Yeah. So I was found what most people understand as insane. In Canada, we call it not criminally responsible. And then I went to a mental health center in Brockville, Ontario. And I had to sort of work my way out of that system. So I was an inpatient for a while. And then I became an outpatient and, and I was fully discharged in 2009. So within four years, I was out of the system with no criminal record, which allows me to travel. And within three years, I was living with my family again. So I feel very fortunate that this happened in Canada. And I feel incredibly fortunate that I had some a couple of great friends and psychiatrists who diagnosed me and understood this. So I feel quite fortunate to be able to advocate for drug safety. And David, can I can I ask when you were in the mental health facility, were were you forcibly medicated there, or did they try and put you back on antidepressants? How did they treat you? You know, regarding the the, the drugs once you were in a facility, I wasn't forcibly medicated, but I was compliant. I was put on a Fexer before my criminal trial, which lasted three days, 
and so when I went to Brockville Mental Health Center, I was already on a Fexor, an SNRI, not an SSRI. And it had very similar side effects when I started it. But I pretty quickly recognized, you know, the probably the best way for me to get out of the system is to be compliant, even though I knew these drugs didn't work well with me. So I put on a lot of weight actually with Effexor. So I was on it for five and a half years. And then 2010, I sort of slowly weaned off Effexor with support from Yolan Lusire, who is a forensic psychiatrist and an expert in metabolism and DNA from Australia. So I've really been I've been off all psychiatric drugs since 2010. I understand. Thank you, David. So given these awful experiences, you know, I, I have to ask, have you been able to forgive yourself? And how has your family come to terms with this? And and how have you approached trying to find some peace after that tragedy? Great questions. <laughs> uh, we'll start with my family. My daughter, without me asking, has been on a couple of major broadcast with me. We were on the Dr. Oz show together. Um, two episodes of a current affairs show in Canada called CTVW5 in a BBC panorama film. And the reason she stood right beside me from the beginning is because she knew who I was. I really had one bad year in my life. And even when I was on PAX for the first time for eight months, um, I had I was abrupt. You know, there were, it wasn't necessarily a full-blown homicidal psychotic episode, but I was abrupt and not physically violent, but certainly probably verbally. And my daughter noticed that and my wife noticed that. So they both forgave me and and encouraged me to forgive myself, but that's much harder. So the way that I've, first of all, the way that I've done this, I have to do enough research and talk to enough people from, you know, David Healy's to Robert Whitaker's to be to really believe it was a drug, that's the first thing. You know, when I used to do interviews shortly after this, and I broke my silence when I was still a forensic inpatient, and, and my treating psychiatrist actually supported that. And I had to convince myself and believe that it was the drug that caused the psychosis because I was getting this question, oh, it's easier to blame the drug than yourself. And I got that in almost every interview once I broke my silence. So I had to really believe that. And the second was I had to find a purpose. And it's a lifelong purpose. You know, it changes and it might continue to change, but I'll always be a drug safety advocate, not specifically with SSRI antidepressants. My interest is in the antidepressant area, but also with all drugs. And that's why I set up, uh, in 2012, I set up a, a campaign, which is a, called Know Your Drugs. You know, it's, and knowyourdrugs.org is the website. It's I started to work on it back in 2012. I didn't really, didn't really launch the website until 2015. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, David. Well, I'd like to come on to talk about your drug safety advocate work now, if it's okay. In particular, um, your, your tour. So in November of 2023, you're embarking on a US tour uh, to 15 American cities to raise awareness of the risks of SSRIs and other antidepressants, and to help people make informed choices about their use. So can you tell us a little bit about the tour, about you know what form it will take, and perhaps how people can find out if you're coming to a place near them and how they can attend? The reason I'm touring, and the reason I did tour Canada in 2022, looking generally at prescription drug safety, but I realized in 2018, I was on a mental health and crisis lecture tour in Australia, New Zealand. And there were several medical researchers. And it was organized by a woman who lost her son to SSR-induced suicide. 
Maria Bradshaw is her name. And Peter Gochi was there and Robert Whitaker. And, you know, we got to New Zealand and Live Talk Radio only wanted me. They didn't want the medical researchers. They just wanted the true crime killer dad story. So I went on to a live radio show. And in one of the shows I was introduced, I got killer dad in the studio with me. And the first question was, how does it feel like to, to kill your own child? And I wasn't expecting that. But I'm getting more used to dealing with those difficult type of openings. And when I came back from Australia and New Zealand, I said, you know, to get the mainstream media interested, what they really want are the stories. And so I, I've fortunately, I've got great access to some tremendous medical researchers because I need the theory behind it, but I need to put it in plain language. And I was able to engage the mainstream media, even with the Cross Canada tour. There were nine cities. This is, you know, 2022. And it didn't have a lot of people that came to the actual events, but there were two current affairs shows, one in Canada, CTW5, and an Australian show. Between them, they reached a few million people. And that's really my interest is trying to reach the broader public. I have no idea what's going to happen in the U.S. I mean, the pharmaceutical industry with direct-to-consumer advertising have an incredible influence on the major networks, but I really got to give it a go. And in terms of finding out more about it, I guess that people could visit your website, which is knowyourdrugs.org. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. And it's the tour page. And in the actual tour, it's an antidepressant safety tour. So the focus is going to be on antidepressants. Thank you, David. I think it's incredibly, incredibly important to give people the information they need about some pretty horrific consequences potentially of taking antidepressant drugs. And, uh, you know, as you said yourself, the research says one thing, but, you know, there isn't really anything like hearing personal experience, uh, you know, when it comes to really making people understand this is quite a big choice in your life, isn't it, to decide to go on these drugs or not? Well, I think it is. I mean, my experience is rare. It happens. But there's a lot more common experiences. When I was in New Zealand on a live talk radio show, there was a woman that was listening, and I talked about sexual dysfunction issues. And she came to the session that evening irate. She had no idea that sexual dysfunction was a side effect of SSRIs. She basically just claimed it destroyed her marriage. Now, I didn't talk to her afterwards. I would like to have to find a bit more about her story, but there's a lot of people that have had their relationships probably maybe not destroyed, but certainly affected by sexual dysfunction issues. You've also got the issues of emotional blunting or that you don't feel anything positive or negative, and, and there's no way that doesn't affect you know, your, your life. I mean, it may prevent some worries, but there's other implications. So it goes well beyond these extreme stories of how SSRIs can cause suicide or violence or homicides or, you know, or the connection to mass shootings. So I really, I hope it does engage the broader public because there's a lot of people on antidepressants. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, David. And, you know, you mentioned there that your case is, is rare, but it's absolutely not the only case of, of this kind of event happening within a family. And I, I wondered if it's okay if we could talk a little bit about the case of Lindsay Clancy. Now, you know, some listeners might know, but uh, Lindsay is um, a 32-year-old mother from Boston who became anxious about returning to work as a, a labor delivery nurse after her maternity leave. And in October 2022, I think it was, she decided to meet with a psychiatrist. And then in January 2023, after being prescribed 13 different drugs in the previous four months, including two SSRIs, she 
tragically took the lives of her three young children during a psychotic episode and then attempted suicide herself. So, you know, this is a another heartbreaking tragedy. The legal case is in progress. And of course, the prosecution are claiming that this was an act of premeditated murder, and the defense is making the argument that Lindsay was mentally unwell at the time. So, you know, given your experiences, David, I wonder what your thoughts were about this tragic event with Lindsay. Well, I, I think there's no question, and I probably can relate to that story as much as any story. Uh, there's no question that um, either the combination, or she was on two different SSRIs, of the 13 drugs, Prozac and Zoloft. I don't know the details, whether she had just started one, increase of dosage, coming off. You know, it's very hard to know the details. But I think what's really interesting in this story is the prosecutor came on and said, you know, she couldn't have planned this if she was psychotic. And our argument was it was planned. And, you know, I, I'm not going to comment on that. It's before the courts. But if it was planned, you can absolutely plan and be psychotic, especially on an SSRI-induced psychotic episode. So that's really what prompted my interest in this whole story. And it is an incredible tragedy, plus her background. I mean, there was no history. She was a labor delivery nurse in a hospital. So, and she was home and people start comparing it with postpartum depression, but I think it was past that stage based on my understanding. And she was anxious about returning to work after maternity leave. She had three young children, a five, a three and an eight month old. So that's understandable. And then suddenly she went to her first psychiatrist and four months later, she had been on 13 drugs. So it's a case that I think everybody should be watching closely. I certainly am. These events are not easy things to talk about or, or, or really to hear and, and to understand, but it's so important that we do understand and respect the full gamut of experience of, you know, people's different reactions to SSRIs and antidepressants, isn't it? You know, my real interest, I mean, it's not just the case, but I hope there's some way that it can help Lindsay forgive herself, which to me is the most difficult thing. There was a GoFundMe campaign to raise money, and part of that was her husband talking out about forgiving Lindsay. Her challenge would be forgiving herself. One thing that kept me alive and going was my daughter, Jillian. I really had my daughter to live for. So it's going to be very difficult. And, you know, again, I'm going to get back. The purpose is critical, but she has to definitely believe it was the drugs. Those are the two key components in, in me forgiving myself. It doesn't apply to everybody, of course. But those two are important to me. And I hope, regardless of what happens in terms of the outcome of her trial, I really hope she can find it deep within herself to forgive herself. It's just a tragic case and one that I really felt uh, heartfelt. It was very difficult for me to read the details because there's so many similarities between her tragedy and my own. Thank you, David. And um I wondered if we, if we could move on to talk about something else. So in 2018, you wrote a piece for Madden America, and, and you described there the tragedy that your family suffered while you were experiencing drug-induced psychosis. And you also talked of this as a possible risk factor in mass shooting. So I wonder if we could talk about that a little bit. I think one of the critical things for me when I connected the mass shootings is the calm, organized behavior. I mean, at the end of the day, it's people that are pulling the trigger. So what's actually going on with them? And no one's looking at that. And even if there's an SSRI or another antidepressant or psychiatric drugs involved, you don't hear about it. You know, we can speculate. And there are many cases where 
we have found out, and there are many cases where we have no idea. But it's their calm, organized planning that is very similar to my case, where I, in the last week, I, I got the sleeping medication, I planned the trip, and <laughs> no one could even tell there was anything wrong with me. I had a, a business meeting in the middle of the week. I, I was at a children's summer camp. You know, I was directing a children's summer camp in Toronto. I was there on the Friday morning, and I drove off with Ian on the Friday afternoon. And I think a lot of the people who look at these mass shooters, they can't tell there's anything wrong with them because they seem to be very normal. And to me, you become more normal is become more delusional and more psychotic. And unless someone is able to recognize what I would call their false belief and work with it, and it doesn't mean telling them they're wrong because that doesn't work. You know, I absolutely thought I had to take Ian's life and I was prepared to sacrifice my own by spending 25 years in prison. I didn't need a lawyer. I didn't want a lawyer. I just said, yeah, I just want to start my prison sentence. That's really all that I wanted to do at that time because I thought the sacrifice was so important. So we don't really know what's going through the minds of a lot of these shooters. And it would be important to intervene if you see any type of odd behavior, ask them questions because. You believe this, so you'll talk about it. I would have, but nobody asked me anything, and it wasn't anything I was going to share. I, I just didn't feel that I had to. I thought I was going to do the whole family a favor. Yeah, I, I guess it's important, isn't it, to, you know, when, when there are reports of mass shootings, you know, typically the news reports will say, well, they were suffering from anxiety or depression or something else, but it's just as important to understand, have they started, stopped, or changed dosage of medications in the period leading up to the tragedy? Well, if there's a suicide, there should be mandatory toxicology testing, and it should be released. The results should be released publicly without someone having to go through a freedom of information request. You know, it should be released. And those who are still alive, I, I believe that information is important to share. Absolutely. Thank you, David. So for people listening to this conversation, what would you like them to know most? What's the most important thing for people listening to know about antidepressant drugs? Well, I think generally in all drugs, which is why I set up knowyourdrugs.org, I think people have to be able to make informed choices for in, in terms of prescription drug use. And, and we're not. You know, a lot of the doctors themselves aren't aware of all the side effects, or particularly some of the rare side effects, um, you know, because the pharmaceutical companies have concealed them to get approval. And, you know, so they're, they're not aware. And then I think we have to make sure, you know, with focusing now on antidepressants, that we're closely monitored. That people around you know what the side effects may be. People around you recognize what akathisia is. They don't think that your condition is getting worse. They recognize that might be a side effect, which to me is a very good indicator to get off that drug, you know, right away. So I think that's the most important part. A, you making an informed choice, and, and doctors have to be right with you on this. They have to make sure that you really understand potential side effects. And then it's very important for people to monitor you anytime you're starting a drug or changing dosage and, and during withdrawal. So the message is actually fairly simple. It's, uh, you know, it's, it's just something we haven't done in the past in most cases. To me, you know, part of me forgiving myself with my purpose, and that's why I've been a drug safety advocate since 2006. And I really hope that this antidepressant safety tour engages the public. You know, we really have to, we have to engage the public before they get harmed. And that's not happening. I am really hoping I can help prevent 
people from being harmed or harming others. And that's really why I'm doing it. I'm hoping I can engage the mainstream media, but we'll find out starting in November of this year. David, I, you know, I can't thank you enough for coming on and, and talking about such difficult experiences. You know, I mean, nobody could blame you or your family for wanting to hide away and not ever speak about this again. But I think it's incredibly courageous to be front and center out there talking about this to people, being interviewed on television, being interviewed on podcasts, educating others, because we cannot rely on the official information about this, can we? Because we know that the evidence of harm is held back and people aren't given the full facts. But I think to have been through the experience that you have and the experiences that your family have, I really admire your courage in being willing to talk about these things. Well, I appreciate that. It's, uh, it gets difficult sometimes. Anyway, James, thank you. Well, I just want to thank David so much for coming on the podcast to talk about his experiences. If you'd like to know more about his work, and in particular, the upcoming antidepressant safety tour, you can visit the website knowyourdrugs.org, where you will find all the details. So thank you, as always, for listening and for your support of Madden America. Until next time, take care. Thank you for listening to the Madden America podcast. Visit maddenamerica.com for more news, views and updates.